Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Aesop, who became Edom, who became the Roman Empire, which metamorphosed into the Christian Empire, which became Christian civilization, which is now represented by the United States of America. The destruction of Edom is prophesied many times throughout the Bible. In the book of Daniel, recorded in chapter 7, where the four empires are represented by four beasts. The fourth beast refers to Rome and Western civilization. Daniel relates, The fourth beast was dreadful, terrifying, and extremely powerful, with enormous iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet. And I watched as the beast was killed, and its flesh destroyed and dispatched, into the consuming flames. All its manifestations will be destroyed. Furthermore, from Daniel's dream, it seems that their destruction will occur before the Messiah comes. The fourth beast is killed and consumed by flames before he sees Mashiach, the Messiah, appear with the clouds of heaven. Welcome, everyone, to another Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you once again for taking your precious time to hang out with me learn some new stuff. This week, it's going to be a continuance of the Those We Don't Speak Of series. I've got so much information on this subject. It's such a huge subject that, I'm not joking, I find more information daily on it. And so we're just going to keep this series going for as long as it takes. And we're going to try to continue the education on the hidden history of all things concerning this particular subject. Now this week, I've been debating on which way I wanted to go with the show, and I thought, you know what, let's just look at Israel Shahak, who was a professor at Hebrew University. We're going to look at one of his books. Now we've looked at one in the past and read excerpts from it. That one was called 
Jewish fundamentalism in Israel, and we learned a lot of things. Of course, he was Jewish, and he was a professor there at Hebrew University in Israel. So before you start to call me anti-Semitic, this is a Jew talking. And of course, he got a ton of pushback on his information. He's one of the few guys who's willing to actually tell the truth. And he was actually a Holocaust survivor. His family fled Germany. And so I think it's pretty interesting. He is very intelligent. He's passed on now, but he's very intelligent. His work is easily readable. He's got tons of bookmarks and footnotes. And I think it's just a great source to have. And it's one of those authors that you need to go to if you're interested in this subject. And I would recommend this book as well as the one I just mentioned, Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel. He just states the facts, and some of the facts will really surprise you. But I think we need to know this information to really be able to get a good grasp on not just Middle Eastern policy, but perhaps the people, many of the people that are in charge of the government in high-level positions here in government and in business, because you start to see a pattern. Pattern recognition is very important, and that's one of the things that keeps me going on this subject because I continue to recognize patterns throughout history, and I think that that's the way to move forward. So so I think I've got an interesting show for you. It's going to be a lot of reading, as we often do here on the Oddcast, but I think that you'll really get something out of it. So without any further blathering, let's get on with the show. So Professor Shahak starts off the first chapter saying that this book, although written in English and addressed to the people living outside the state of Israel, is in a way a continuation of my political activities as an Israeli Jew. Those activities began in 1965 through 1966 with a protest which caused a considerable scandal at the time. I had personally witnessed an ultra-religious Jew refuse to allow his phone to be used on the Sabbath in order to call an ambulance for a non-Jew who happened to have collapsed in his Jerusalem neighborhood. Instead of simply publishing the incident in the press, I asked for a meeting with the members of the Rabbinical Court of Jerusalem which is composed of rabbis nominated by the state of Israel. I asked them whether such behavior was consistent with their interpretation of the Jewish religion. They answered that the Jew in question had behaved correctly, indeed piously, and backed their statement by referring me to a passage in an authoritative compendium of the Talmudic laws written in this century. I reported the incident to the main Hebrew daily, the Haaretz, whose publication of the story caused a media scandal. The results of the scandal were, for me, rather negative. Neither the Israeli nor the diaspora rabbinical authorities ever reversed their ruling that a Jew should not violate the Sabbath in order to save the life of a Gentile. They added much sanctimonious twaddle to the effect that if the consequence of such an act puts Jews in danger, the violation of the Sabbath is permitted for their sake. It became apparent to me as drawing on knowledge acquired in my youth. I began to study the Talmudic laws governing the relations between Jews and non-Jews that neither Zionism, including its seemingly secular part, nor Israeli politics, 
since the inception of the state of Israel, nor particularly the policies of the Jewish supporters of Israel in the diaspora, could be understood unless deeper influence of those laws and the worldview by which they create and express is taken into account. The actual policies Israel pursued after the Six-Day War, and in particular the apartheid character of the Israeli regime in the occupied territories, and the attitude of the majority of Jews to the issue of rights of the Palestinians, even in the abstract, have merely strengthened this conviction. By making this statement, I am not trying to ignore the political or strategic considerations which may have also influenced the rulers of Israel. I am merely saying that actual politics is an interaction between realistic considerations, whether valid or mistaken, whether moral or immoral, in my view, and ideological influences. The latter tend to be more influential the less they are discussed and dragged into the light. Any form of racism, discrimination, or xenophobia becomes more potent and politically influential if it's taken for granted by the society which indulges in it. This is especially so if its discussion is prohibited, either formally or by tacit agreement. When racism and xenophobia is prevalent among Jews and directed against non-Jews, being fueled by religious motivations, it is like its opposite case, that of anti-Semitism and its religious motivations. Today, however, the second is being discussed. The very existence of the first is generally ignored, more outside Israel than within it. Defining the Jewish state. Without a discussion of the prevalent Jewish attitudes to non-Jews and even the concept of Israel as a Jewish state, as Israel formally defines itself, cannot be understood. The widespread misconception that Israel, even without considering its regime in the occupied territories, is a true democracy arises from the refusal to confront the significance of the term a Jewish state for non-Jews. In my view, Israel as a Jewish state constitutes a danger not only to itself and its inhabitants, but to all Jews and to all other peoples and states in the Middle East and beyond. I also consider that the other Middle Eastern states or entities which define themselves as Arab or Muslim, like the Israeli self-definition as being Jewish, likewise constitute a danger. However, while this danger is widely discussed, the danger inherent in the Jewish character of the state of Israel is not. The principle of Israel as a Jewish state was supremely important to Israeli politicians from the inception of the state and was inculcated into the Jewish population by all conceivable ways. When in the early 1980s, a tiny minority of Israeli Jews emerged which opposed this concept, a constitutional law, that is, a law overriding provisions of other laws which cannot be revoked except by a special procedure, was passed in 1985 by an enormous majority of the Knesset. By this law, no party whose program openly opposes the principle of a Jewish state or proposes to change it by democratic means is allowed to participate in the elections to the Knesset. I myself strongly oppose this constitutional principle. The legal consequence for me is that I cannot belong, in the state of which I am a citizen, to a party having principles with which I would agree and which is allowed to participate in the Knesset elections. 
Even this example shows that the state of Israel is not a democracy due to the application of a Jewish ideology directed against all non-Jews and those Jews who oppose this ideology. But the danger which this dominant ideology represents is not limited to domestic affairs. It also influences Israeli foreign policies. This danger will continue to grow as long as two currently operating developments are being strengthened. The increase in the Jewish character of Israel and the increase in its power, particularly in nuclear power. Another ominous factor is that Israeli influence in the USA political establishment is also increasing. Hence, accurate information about Judaism, and especially about the treatment of non-Jews by Israel, is now not only important, but politically vital as well. I know this can be tedious to listen to, but I think it's very important as he continues to explain things from an insider's point of view. Let me begin with the official Israeli definition of the term Jewish, illustrating the crucial differences between Israel as a Jewish state and the majority of other states. By this official definition, Israel belongs to persons who are defined by the Israeli authorities as Jewish, irrespectively of where they live and to them alone. On the other hand, Israel doesn't officially belong to its non-Jewish citizens, whose status is considered even officially as inferior. This means in practice that if members of a Peruvian tribe are converted to Judaism and thus regarded as Jewish, they are entitled at once to become Israeli citizens and benefit from approximately 70% of the West Bank land and the 92% of the area of Israel proper, officially designated only for the benefit of the Jews. All non-Jews, not only all Palestinians, are prohibited from benefiting from those lands. The prohibition applies even to the Israeli Arabs who served in the Israeli army and reached a high rank. The case involving Peruvian converts to Judaism actually occurred a few years ago. The newly created Jews were settled in the West Bank near Nablus on the land which non-Jews are officially excluded. All Israeli governments are taking enormous political risks, including the risk of war, so that such settlements, composed exclusively of persons who are defined as Jewish and not Israeli, as most of the media mendaciously claims, would be subject to only Jewish authority. I suspect the Jews of the USA or Britain would regard it as anti-Semitic if Christians would propose that the USA or the United Kingdom should become a Christian state belonging only to citizens officially defined as Christians. The consequence of such doctrine is that Jews converting to Christianity would become full citizens because of their conversion. It should be recalled that the benefits of conversions are well known to Jews from their own history. When the Christian and the Islamic states used to discriminate against all persons not belonging to the religion of the state, including the Jews, the discrimination against the Jews was at once removed by their conversion. But a non-Jew discriminated against by the state of Israel will cease to be so treated the moment he or she converts to Judaism. This simply shows that the same kind of exclusivity that is regarded by a majority of the diaspora as anti-Semitic is regarded by the majority of all the Jews as Jewish. To oppose both anti-Semitism and Jewish chauvinism is widely regarded among Jews as self-hatred, a concept which I regard as nonsensical. 
The meaning of the term Jewish and its cognates, including Judaism, thus becomes, in the context of Israeli politics, as important as the meaning of Islamic when officially used by Iran or communist when officially used by the USSR. Of course, this book was written quite a while back. However, the meaning of the term Jewish, as it is popularly used, is not clear, either in Hebrew or when translated into other languages. And so the term had to be defined officially. According to Israeli law, a person is considered Jewish if either their mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother were Jewesses by religion or if the person was converted to Judaism in a way satisfactory to the Israeli authorities and on condition that the person has not converted from Judaism to another religion, in which case Israel ceases to regard them as Jewish. Of the three conditions, the first represents the Talmudic definition of who is a Jew, a definition followed by Jewish orthodoxy. The Talmud and post-Talmudic rabbinic law also recognized the conversion of a non-Jew to Judaism, as well as the purchase of a non-Jewish slave by a Jew followed by a different kind of conversion as a method of becoming Jewish, provided that the conversion is performed by an authorized rabbi in a proper manner. This proper manner entails for females their inspection of three rabbis while naked in a bath of purification, a ritual which although notorious to all readers of Hebrew press, is not often mentioned by the English media in spite of its undoubted interest for certain readers. I hope that this book will be the beginning of a process which will rectify this discrepancy. Now, I think this is very important because he gets into really the hardcore beliefs, and I think that a lot of people are totally unaware of this. This chapter, too, is Prejudice and Prevarication. The first difficulty in writing about this subject is that the term Jew has been used during the last 150 years with two different meanings. To understand this, let us imagine ourselves in the year 1780. Then the universally accepted meaning of the term Jew basically coincided with what the Jews themselves understood as constituting their own identity. This identity was primarily religious, but the precepts of the religion govern the details of daily behavior in all aspects of life, both social and private, among the Jews themselves as well as in their relation to non-Jews. It was then literally true that a Jew could not even drink a glass of water in the home of a non-Jew, and the same basic laws of behavior towards non-Jews were equally valid from Yemen to New York. Whatever the term by which the Jews of 1780 may be described and I do not wish to enter into a metaphysical dispute about the terms like nation and people, it is clear that all Jewish communities at the time were separate from non-Jewish societies in the midst of which they were living. However, all this was changed by two parallel processes beginning in Holland and England, continuing in revolutionary France and in countries which followed the example of the French Revolution And then in the modern monarchies of the 19th century, the Jews gained a significant level of individual rights, and in some cases, full legal equality, and the legal power of the Jewish community over its members was destroyed. It should be noted that the developments were simultaneous and that the latter is even more important, albeit less widely known, than the former. 
Since the time of the Roman Empire, Jewish communities had considerable legal powers over their members. Not only powers which arise through voluntary mobilization of social pressure, for example, refusal to have any dealing whatsoever with an excommunicated Jew or even to bury his body, but a power of naked coercion to flog, to imprison, to expel, all this could be inflicted quite legally on an individual Jew by the rabbinical courts for all kinds of offenses. And this is quite reminiscent to what Christ was railing against towards the Pharisees. In many countries, Spain and Poland are notable examples. Even capital punishment could be and was inflicted, sometimes using particularly cruel methods such as flogging to death. All this was not only permitted but positively encouraged by state authorities in both Christian and Muslim countries who, besides their general interest in preserving law and order, had in some cases a more direct financial interest as well. For example, in Spanish archives, dating from the 13th and 14th centuries, there are records of many detailed orders issued by those devout Catholic kings of Castile and Aragon instructing their no less devout officials to cooperate with the rabbis in enforcing observance of the Sabbath by the Jews. Why? Because whenever a Jew was fined by a rabbinical court for violating the Sabbath, the rabbis had to hand nine-tenths of the fine over to the king, a very profitable and effective arrangement. Similarly, one can quote the responsa written shortly before 1832 by the famous Rabbi Moshe Sofer of Pressburg, now Bratislava, in what then was the autonomous Hungarian kingdom in the Austrian Empire, and addressed to Vienna in Austria proper, where the Jews had already been granted some considerable individual rights. He laments the fact that since the Jewish congregation in Vienna lost its powers to punish offenders, the Jews there have become lax in matters of religious observance. And he adds, Here in Pressburg, when I am told that a Jewish shopkeeper dared to open his shop during the lesser holidays, I immediately send a policeman to imprison him. This was the most important social fact of Jewish existence before the advent of the modern state. Observance of the religious laws of Judaism, as well as their inculcation through education, were enforced on the Jews by physical coercion, from which one could only escape by conversion to the religion of the majority, amounting in the circumstances to a total social break, and for that very reason impracticable, except during a religious crisis. However, once the modern state had come into existence, the Jewish community lost its powers to punish or intimidate the individual Jew. Think about Sharia law. We've talked about how Talmudic law and the Noahide laws are like Sharia law on steroids. Now, continue. The bonds of one of the most closed of closed societies, one of the most totalitarian societies in the whole history of mankind, were snapped. This act of liberation came mostly from outside, although there were some Jews who helped it from within, but these were at first very few. This form of liberation had a very grave consequence for the future. Just as in the case of Germany, according to the masterly analysis of A.J.P. Taylor, it was easy to ally the cause of reaction with patriotism because 
In actual fact, individual rights and equality before the law were brought into Germany by the armies of the French Revolution of Napoleon, and one could brand liberty as un-German. Exactly so it turned out to be very easy among the Jews, particularly in Israel, to mount a very effective attack against all notions and ideas of humanism and the rule of law, not to say democracy, as something un-Jewish or anti-Jewish, as indeed they are. In a historical sense, as principles which may be used in the Jewish interests, but which have no validity against the Jewish interest, for example, when Arabs invoke these same principles, this has also led, again just as in Germany and other nations of Middle Europa, to a deceitful, sentimental, and ultra-romantic Jewish historiography, from which all inconvenient facts have been expunged. So one will not find in Hannah Arendt's voluminous writings, whether on totalitarianism or on Jews or on both, the smallest hint as to what Jewish society in Germany was really like in the 18th century. Burning of books, persecution of writers, disputes about magic powers of amulets, bans on the most elementary non-Jewish education, such as the teaching of correct German, or indeed German written in the Latin alphabet. Now he's talking about what these rabbis held up as law, and that the Jews under the rabbis could not do these types of things, or were getting punished for doing these types of things. And he goes on, Nor can one find in the numerous English-language Jewish histories the elementary facts about the attitude of Jewish mysticism to non-Jews, that they are considered to be literally limbs of Satan, and that the few non-Satanic individuals among them, that is, those who convert to Judaism, are in reality Jewish souls who got lost when Satan violated the Holy Lady or the Shekinah or Matronet, one of the female components of the Godhead. He's getting into the Kabbalah and what they believe. The sister and the wife of the younger male God, according to the Kabbalah, in her heavenly abode. The great authorities, such as Gershom Sholem, have lent their authority to a system of deceptions in all the sensitive areas, the more popular ones being the most dishonest and misleading. Now, we've read a lot on Jewish mysticism from Gershom Sholem. He, he was the first scholar on Jewish mysticism at Hebrew University, the same university that Shahak taught at. And what he's actually saying is that the whole mysticism in Kabbalah distorted Judaism and really changed it. And we'll go on to learn more about that. But we talked about that with Isaac Luria and how Lurianic Kabbalah kind of um, just really infiltrated the Jewish culture as a whole and changed it from within. We'll go on here. But the social consequences of this process of liberalization was that, for the first time since about AD 200, a Jew could be free to do what he liked within the bounds of his country's civil law without having to pay for this freedom by converting to another religion. The freedom to learn and read books in modern languages, the freedom to read and write books in Hebrew, not approved by the rabbis, as any Hebrew or Yiddish book previously had to be, the freedom to eat non-kosher food, the freedom to ignore the numerous absurd taboos regulating sexual life, even the freedom to think, for the forbidden thoughts are among the most serious sins. All of these were granted to the Jews of Europe and subsequently of other countries 
by modern or even absolutionist European regimes, although the latter were at the same time anti-Semitic and oppressive. Nicholas I of Russia was a notorious anti-Semite and issued many laws against the Jews of his state, but he also strengthened the forces of law and order in Russia, not only the secret police, but also the regular police and the gendarmerie, or gendarmerie, I don't know what that is, with the consequence that it became difficult to murder Jews on the order of their rabbis, whereas in pre-1795 Poland, it had been quite easy. He's talking about these Talmudic laws and these Noahide laws that Jews are supposed to follow and how in a lot of these laws it calls for capital punishment when you break them. And so these rabbis were, as he said earlier, some of the most authoritarian people you've ever seen in your life. And that's what they want to get back to. And that's what they're trying to do right now in Israel. And that's why so many people are fighting back against it. Continues, official Jewish history condemns him on both counts. For example, in the late 1830s, a holy rabbi, or a tzaddik, which is spelled T-Z-A-D-I-C, in a small Jewish town in the Ukraine, ordered the murder of a heretic by throwing him into boiling water of the town baths. And contemporary Jewish sources note with astonishment and horror that bribery was no longer effective and that not only the actual perpetrators, but also the holy man, were severely punished. The Metternich regime of pre-1848 Austria was notoriously reactionary and quite unfriendly to Jews, but it did not allow people, even liberal Jewish rabbis, to be poisoned. During 1848, when the regime's power was temporarily weakened, the first thing the leaders of the Jewish community in the Galatian city of Limburg, now Lvov, did with their newly regained freedom was to poison the liberal rabbi of the city, whom the tiny, non-Orthodox Jewish group in the city had imported from Germany. One of his greatest heresies, by the way, was the advocacy and actual performance of the bar mitzvah ceremony, which had recently been invented. It gets down here, it says, liberation from the outside. In the last 150 years, the term Jew has therefore acquired a dual meaning. To the great confusion of some well-meaning people, particularly in the English-speaking countries, who imagine that the Jews they meet socially are representative of Jews in general. In the countries of Eastern Europe, as well as in the Arab world, the Jews were liberated from the tyranny of their own religion and of their own communities by outside forces too late and in the circumstances too unfavorable for genuine internalized social change. In most cases, and particularly in Israel, the old concept of society, the same ideology, especially as directed towards non-Jews, and the same utterly false conception of history have been preserved. This applies even to some of those Jews who joined progressive or leftist movements. An examination of radical socialist and communist parties can provide many examples of disguised Jewish chauvinists and racists who join these parties merely for reasons of Jewish interest and are, in Israel, in favor of anti-Gentile discrimination. One need only check how many Jewish socialists have managed to ride about the kibbutz without taking the trouble to mention that it is a racist institution from which non-Jewish citizens of Israel are rigorously excluded. To see that the phenomenon we are alluding to is by no means uncommon. The kibbutz 
they're like a communist camps. Uh, they were some of the first ones there in Israel, and they continue to this day, but they may not be quite as big as they used to be. I haven't looked deeply into it, but uh, many people know, um, some people maybe don't know, that uh, the Zionists, the leaders of Zionism, originally were communists and socialists. And uh, we'll get into that on a show one day if, uh, if it's the Lord's will. But we go on here. Avoiding labels based on ignorance or hypocrisy, we thus see that the word Jewry and its cognates describe two different and even contrasting social groups. And because of current Israeli politics, the continuum between the two is disappearing fast. On the one hand, there is a traditional totalitarian meaning discussed above. On the other hand, there are Jews by descent who have internalized the complex ideas which Karl Popper has called the open society. There are also some, particularly in the USA, who have not internalized these ideas, but try to make a show of acceptance. I want to say quickly, too, that Karl Popper is the open society. Of course, he was the hero of George Soros, and that's where he got the you know, name for his organization, Open Society. But he, Soros, changed Popper's idea quite a bit, and Popper actually changed his attitude towards things uh, later on in life. I believe Popper may have even converted to Christianity, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, also I want to say that uh, we also need to remember when we're reading things about conservative and liberal, different things like that, it doesn't necessarily mean the exact same things in these other countries, and Judaism is, or excuse me, Israel is no different. We learned in one of the episodes that even the so-called conservative Jews, conservative Judaism, which is mostly here in the United States, they even believe in things like gay marriage and abortion rights and uh, gun laws, different things like that. So it's not the same exact type of conservatism as we think of. But anyway, we'll go on here. It is important to note that all the supposed Jewish characteristics, by which I mean the traits which vulgar so-called intellectuals in the West attribute to the Jews, are modern characteristics, quite unknown during most of the Jewish history, and appeared only when the totalitarian Jewish community began to lose its power. Take, for example, the famous Jewish sense of humor— not only is humor very rare in Hebrew literature before the 19th century and is only found during the few periods in countries where the Jewish upper class was relatively free from the rabbinical yoke, such as Italy between the 14th and 17th century, or Muslim Spain. But humor and jokes are strictly forbidden by the Jewish religion, except, significantly, jokes against other religions. Satire against rabbis and leaders of the community was never internalized by Judaism, not even to a small extent, as it was in Latin Christianity. There were no Jewish comedies, just as there were no comedies in Sparta, and for a similar reason. Or take the love of learning. Except for a purely religious learning, which was itself in a debased and degenerate state, the Jews of Europe, and to a somewhat lesser extent also of the Arab countries, were dominated before about 1780, by a supreme contempt and hate for all learning, excluding the Talmud and Jewish mysticism. Large parts of the Old Testament, all non-liturgical, Hebrew poetry, most books on Jewish philosophy, were not read, and their very names were often anathematized. 
Study of all languages was strictly forbidden, as was the study of mathematics and science. Geography, history, even Jewish history were completely unknown. The critical sense, which is supposedly so characteristic of Jews, was totally absent, and nothing was forbidden, feared, and therefore persecuted as the most modest innovation or the most innocent criticism. It was a world sunk in the most abject superstition, fanaticism, and ignorance, a world in which the preface to the first work on geography in Hebrew, published in 1803 in Russia, could complain that a very many great rabbis were denying the existence of the American continent and saying that it is impossible. Between that world and what is often taken in the West to characterize Jews, there is nothing in common except the mistaken name. However, a great many present-day Jews are nostalgic for that world, their lost paradise, the comfortable closed society from which they were not so much liberated as expelled. A large part of the Zionist movement always wanted to restore it, and this part has gained the upper hand. Many of the motives behind the Israeli politics, which so bewilder the poor, confused Western friends of Israel, are perfectly explicable once they are seen simply as reaction, reaction in the political sense which this word has had for the last 200 years, a forced and in many respects innovative and therefore illusory return to the closed society of the Jewish past. We're really thinking about the Jewish Power Party and the Likud Party and how they have merged in Israel there, the most authoritarian regime that they've had in a long time. Now, this part says obstacles to understanding. And I think this is really important to know this stuff because it really gets into the heart of what is believed, how the history happened, and it really kind of clears up some things for us because we have these preconceived notions because we've kind of had this romanticized story of Judaism and the modern Israeli state. So we really need to know what's real and what's not. Now it goes on here, historically it can be shown that a closed society is not interested in a description of itself. No doubt because any description is is in part a form of critical analysis and so may encourage critical forbidden thoughts. The more a society becomes open, the more it is interested in reflecting at first descriptively and then critically upon itself, its present working as well as its past. But what happens when a faction of intellectuals desires to drag a society, which has already opened up to a considerable extent, back to its previous totalitarian closed condition? Then, the very means of the former progress, philosophy, the sciences, history, and especially sociology, become the most effective instruments of the treason of the intellectuals. They are perverted in order to serve as devices of deception and in the process, they degenerate. Classical Judaism had little interest in describing or explaining itself to the members of its own community, whether educated in the Talmudic studies or not. It is significant that the writings of the Jewish history, even the driest analytic style, ceased completely from the time of Josephus Flavius, end of the first century, until the Renaissance, when it was revived for a short time in Italy and in other countries where the Jews were under strong Italian influence. 
Characteristically, the rabbis feared Jewish even more than general history, and the first modern book on the history published in Hebrew in the 16th century was entitled History of the Kings of France and of the Ottoman Kings. It was followed by some histories dealing with the persecutions that the Jews had been subjected to. Only the persecutions, excuse me. The first book on Jewish history proper, dealing with ancient times, was promptly banned and suppressed by the highest rabbinical authorities and did not reappear before the 19th century. The rabbinical authorities of the Eastern Europe furthermore decreed that all non-Talmudic studies are to be forbidden, even when nothing specific could be found in them which merits an anathema because they encroach on the time that should be employed either by studying the Talmud or in making money, which should be used to subsidize Talmudic scholars. Only one loophole was left, namely the time that even a pious Jew must perforce spend in the privy. In that unclean place, sacred studies are forbidden, and it was therefore permitted to read history there, provided it was written in Hebrew and was completely secular, which in effect meant that it must be exclusively devoted to non-Jewish subjects. He goes on to say that one can imagine that those few Jews of that time who, no doubt tempted by Satan, developed an interest in the history of the French kings, were constantly complaining to their neighbors about the constipation they were suffering from. Joke, joke. As a consequence, 200 years ago, the vast majority of Jews were totally in the dark, not only about the existence of America, but also about the Jewish history and Jewry's contemporary state, and they were quite content to remain so. It starts to get more interesting after this, but I want to go back up to the previous chapter just to read one short quote here. He says that... He's talking about uh, using the concepts of Platonism to analyze Israeli policies based on Jewish ideology should not seem strange. It was noticed by several scholars, of whom the most important was Moses Hadass, who claimed that the foundations of classical Judaism, that is, of Judaism as it was established by Talmudic sages, are based on Platonic influences, and especially on the image of Sparta as it appears in Plato. According to Hadass, a crucial feature of the Platonic political system adopted by Judaism as early as the Maccabean period, that's 142 to 163 BC, was that every phase of human conduct should be subjected to religious sanctions, which are in fact to be manipulated by the ruler. There can be no better definition of classical Judaism and of the ways in which the rabbis manipulated it than this Platonic definition. In particular, Hadass claims that Judaism adopted what Plato himself summarized as the objectives of his program in the following well-known passage. Quote, The principal thing is that no one, man or woman, should ever be without an officer set over him, and that none should get the mental habit of taking any step, whether in earnest or in jest, on his individual responsibility. In peace, as in war, he must live always with the eyes on his superior officer. In a word, we must train the mind not even to consider acting as an individual or know how to do it. Unquote. 
Shahak says, if the word rabbi is substituted for an officer, we will have a perfect image of classical Judaism. The latter is still deeply influencing Israeli Jewish society and determining to a large extent the Israeli policies. And that's even more true to today. This part is called a totalitarian history. There was, however, one area in which they were not allowed to remain self-contented, the area of Christian attacks against those passages in the Talmud and Talmudic literature, which are specifically anti-Christian, or more generally anti-Gentile. It is important to note that this challenge developed relatively late in the history of the Christian-Jewish relations, only from the 13th century on. Before that time, the Christian authorities attacked Judaism using either biblical or general arguments, but seemed to be quite ignorant as to the contents of the Talmud. Probably because they didn't understand the languages, or maybe they uh, weren't privy to the Talmud. The Christian campaign against the Talmud, now listen to this, was apparently brought on by the conversion to Christianity of Jews who were well-versed in the Talmud and who were in many cases attracted by the development of Christian philosophy with its strong Aristotelian and thus universal character. It must be admitted at the outset that the Talmud and Talmudic literature, quite apart from the general anti-Gentile streak that runs through them, which will be discussed in greater detail in chapter 5, contain very offensive statements and precepts directed specifically against Christianity. For example, in addition to a series of scurrilous sexual allegations against Jesus, the Talmud states that his punishment in hell is to be immersed in boiling excrement, a statement not exactly calculated to endear the Talmud to devout Christians. Or one can quote the precept according to which Jews are instructed to burn, publicly if possible, any copy of the New Testament that comes into their hands. This is not only still in force, but actually practiced today. Thus, on March 23, 1980, hundreds of copies of the New Testament were publicly and ceremonially burnt in Jerusalem under the auspices of Yad Li Akim a Jewish religious organization subsidized by the Israeli Ministry of Religions. Anyway, a powerful attack, well-based in many points, against Talmudic Judaism developed in Europe from the 13th century. We are not referring here to ignorant calumnies such as the blood libel propagated by benighted monks in a small provincial city, but to serious disputations held before the best European universities of the time and on the whole, conducted as fairly as possible under medieval circumstances. What was the Jewish, or rather the rabbinical, response? The simplest one was the ancient weapon of bribery and string pulling. In most European countries, during most of the time, anything could be fixed by a bribe. Well, nothing much has changed. I thoroughly believe that APAC and others like the Zionist Organization of America have bought off nearly all of our politicians. And you realize that when you hear these senators or former representatives say that they pretty much on the spot are asked to sign a paper giving their allegiance to the state of Israel. Nowhere was this maxim more true than in Rome of the Renaissance popes. The Editio Princeps of the Complete Code of Talmudic Law, 
Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, replete not only with the most offensive precepts against all Gentiles, but also with explicit attacks on Christianity and on Jesus, after whose name the author adds piously, may the name of the wicked perish, was published in Rome in the year 1480 under Sixtus V, politically a very active pope who had a constant and urgent need for money. A few years earlier, the only older edition of the Golden Ass by Apulius, from which the violent attack on Christianity had not been removed, was also published in Rome. Alexander V Borgia was also very liberal in that respect. Even during that period, as well as before it, there were always countries in which, for a time, a wave of anti-Talmudic persecution set in. But a more consistent and widespread onslaught came with the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, which induced a higher standard of intellectual honesty, as well as a better knowledge of Hebrew among Christian scholars. From the 16th century, all the Talmudic literature, including the Talmud itself, was subjected to Christian censorship in various countries. In Russia, this went on until 1917. Some censors, such as in Holland, were more lax, while others were more severe, and offensive passages were expunged or modified. All modern studies on Judaism, particularly by Jews, have evolved from that conflict, and to this day, they bear the unmistakable marks of their origin deception, apologetics, or hostile polemics, indifference, or even active hostility to the pursuit of truth. Almost all the so-called Jewish studies in Judaism from that time to this very day are polemics against an external enemy rather than an internal debate. It is important to note that this was initially the character of historiography in all known societies except ancient Greece, whose early liberal historians were attacked by later sophists for their insufficient patriotism. This was true of the early Catholic and Protestant historians who polemicized against each other. Similarly, the earliest European national histories are imbued with the crudest nationalism and scorn for all other neighboring nations. But sooner or later, there comes a time when an attempt is made to understand one's national or religious adversary, and at the same time to criticize certain deep and important aspects of the history of one's own group. And both these developments go together. Only when historiography becomes, as Peter Gale put it so well, a debate without end rather than a continuation of war by its historians, only then does a human historiography, which strives for both accuracy and fairness, become possible. And it then turns into one of the most powerful instruments of human and self-education. It is for this reason that modern totalitarian regimes rewrite history or punish historians. When a whole society tries to return to totalitarianism, a totalitarian history is written, not because of the compulsion from above, but under the pressure from below, which is much more effective. This is what happened in Jewish history. And this constitutes the first obstacle we have to surmount. All right, guys, that finishes up this edition of the Oddcast. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with me and learn some new stuff. And I think that this episode is especially important because of what's going on in the Middle East. It's important anyway because really Israel and Judaism has had such a impact on our world and continues to have such an impact 
And of course, it seems that Western or at least U.S. and U.K. foreign policy is directly linked with whatever the Israeli government or GovCorp wants to do. So I think we need to understand this religion, this culture, because as you guys know, as I started doing this series, I realized I knew nothing of the culture. And as we've learned more and more, you realize how much the rest of society does not know that are they're completely unaware of. And we're talking about Christians. We're talking about secular people. I know that uh, I mentioned in one of the episodes that I talked to a biblical scholar, lifelong biblical scholar, smartest guy I know, and he was completely unaware of what Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews believe. He was completely unaware of how mysticism and Kabbalah had become such a part of the culture. Really, it's not taught in seminary what happened as far as the Jewish religion goes post the Second Temple destruction. You barely get any information on that, and I've talked to numerous people about that. So it's very important that we learn all this stuff and communicate it to each other, share it with each other, because as I said, the policy of U.S., U.K. directly aligns with Israel, and it's not just those two countries, of course. And for anyone who hasn't heard We know that a lot of these Orthodox and Hasidic rabbis have been prophesying for centuries, centuries now, that Esau and Edom, not the ones in the Bible, but the descendants of Esau and Edom, related to Amalek, which they, again, pray frequently that Amalek will be blotted, the memory of Amalek will be blotted off the face of the earth or blotted out from under the heavens. So, They teach that Esau, Edom is the West in Christianity as a whole, and it has to fall. And we've heard numerous rabbis say that. We've read these prophecies, if you will, these twisted Talmudic and Zoharic prophecies, Kabbalistic prophecies, but they believe them wholeheartedly. So, yeah, we need to understand this culture. We need to understand this religion and and what it morphed into post the Second Temple's destruction. So thank you guys once again for hanging out with me. I hope this meant something to you, and I hope you will share the show and share the information. All right, guys, I want to thank my patrons, and if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I want to get to thanking my patrons. I want to thank Dread the newbie. Thank you, Dread. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, KF. Thank you, Cole. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you to that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, from the Daily Ruckus on Alternate Current Radio. Thank you for being a producer of the show. Besides AlternateCurrentRadio.com, you can find Ruckus all over TNT Radio as well. Thank you, No Evil Shall I Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Live. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you to Aaron. And last but not least, thank you to my friend, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. 
Get on over to all your fine podcasting platforms and check out all of Jack's fine work. I also want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com for carrying my show. Get on over there and check out all their fine podcasts and music shows as well. We could all use more music in our lives in these trying times. So that's AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Thank you to Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show. I think they still do. I haven't checked in a long time. I probably should do that, but... Check out those guys as well, and I'll be talking to you soon, Lord willing. Cheers and blessings, and remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. May God bless Israel. May God bless the United States of America. May God bless you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. They have questionnaires. Anybody running for Congress is expected to fill out a questionnaire. And they evaluate the depth of your commitment to Israel on the basis of that questionnaire. Then you have an interview with local people. If you get APAC support, then more often than not, you're going to win. There is tremendous pressure inside the political process to make sure that the voters stay aligned inside either the Democrat or Republican parties. Why? Because both of those parties have been captured by special interests. And those special interests are, quite frankly, the antithesis of the interests of the people. And so we have all of these special interests that have positioned themselves in between the political decision makers and the people themselves. The process now is more responsive to those special interests than it is to the values and the wishes of the American people. And there's no more special interest that has any more influence than the pro-Israel lobby. My father had to ask the question publicly, what does Stone Mountain, Georgia have to do with Israel? What I was doing was servicing the needs of my constituents. And I was not allowed to do that because I did not toe the line on U.S. policy for Israel. What line is that that they wanted? Were you told directly that you had to toe a line or explain that to me? Well, every candidate for Congress at that time had a pledge. They were given a pledge to, to sign. And I was uh, new on the scene. And uh, so the pledge had Jerusalem as the capital city, uh, the military superiority of Israel. American Congress people have to sign this pledge. Yes. You sign the pledge. If you don't sign the pledge, you don't get money. So, for example, my parents observed this. I would get a call and the person on the other end of the phone would say, I want to do a fundraiser for you. And then we would get into the planning. I would get really excited because, of course, you have to have money in order to run a campaign. And then two weeks, three weeks into the planning, they would say, did you sign the pledge? And then I would say, no, I didn't sign the pledge. And then my fundraiser would go kaput. I made it public. This probably nobody had said anything about it. But... I made it public, and then, you know, the excuse was, well, you know, those were just overzealous advocates for Israel. So then the tactic changed. But this is what is done for 
535 members of the United States Congress. 100 senators, 435 members of the House of Representatives have to now write a paragraph, which basically says the same thing. So it's not a pledge, but it's a paragraph, and you post it, and, you know, there are these forums you have to go to at the synagogues or whatever. And then, you know, if you don't perform appropriately, then you don't get money to run your campaign. The problem is that it requires an awful lot of money to run a campaign.